Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Ruby Rogues. I almost said JavaScript Jabber. That shows where I'm at. Uh, anyway, we uh, have a whole bunch of people on our panel, and I'm, I'm super excited to get to the, the topic here. But we have Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. Andrew Mason. Hey, everybody. Eric Berry. Howdy, howdy, howdy. Nate Hopkins. Hello, hello. I'm Charles Max Wood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that's Tung... I already forgot how to say your name. Tung Win. Win? Yeah, like Win, kind of. Like the G silent. Oh, okay. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Anyway, uh, do you want to give us a brief introduction, who you are, why you're famous, all that stuff? Uh, I wouldn't say famous, but uh, yeah, so pretty, uh, I think, obscure. Uh, my name is Tong Wen. I am, I guess, a developer. I run a consultancy company called Bull Ops. Uh, I'm focused on the, on the DevOps space, so it's just like a DevOps shop. But I focus actually specifically only on AWS. Uh, I think uh, currently it's kind of the cloud to do things on, and I enjoy doing a lot of work there. I'm also a kind of Ruby developer and a Rails developer. I've done a lot of work in that space too, and I've built a couple of different tools in this space. Cool. Well, we brought you on to talk about Ruby on Jets, which is, uh, I guess, a play on Ruby on Rails. Do you want to explain what it is really quickly? Sure. So Ruby on Jets is a serverless framework uh, written specifically with uh, kind of Ruby in mind. So um, uh, at the end of the day, it just kind of allows you to deploy an application onto AWS Lambda. And it kind of takes, um, it's kind of like a DSL that takes your, your methods and your functions and translates it to Lambda functions, essentially. But it's a framework that kind of helps you do that. Very cool. And I know that in November, Amazon announced that you can now run AWS Lambdas with, with Ruby. So that, that's super exciting. Yeah, that was pretty cool. I was actually there. I don't know if you guys went to reInvent. I kind of go, <laughs> did you go this year? No, I, I was trying to work things out and I couldn't get my schedule open, but... Oh, bummer, I, yeah. I'm hoping um, to go next year. You should definitely go. I mean, that, that scene grows like larger every single year. I think it was like 45,000 attendees uh, this year. I've been to every single one itself for one. And I've seen it grow from, I don't know, it started off like maybe three or 4,000 to like 45,000 now, where it's kind, of, um, it's kind of crazy because it's spread across all these casinos and resorts now. So you really have to do some pre-planning. If you don't, you're going to spend most of the day on the bus or walking. And we're talking about Vegas blocks here, right? Yeah. So anyway, um, I was there. Yes, they announced Ruby support. I was something that I was uh, excited for, kind of waiting and hoping for for a while there. Because um, I think, you know, the serverless space has been kind of dominated by other languages, like mainly JavaScript and Node. Because I think, I think the reason for that is because there's um, those functions or those languages, they're kind of more functional in their paradigm. 
but Ruby, um, it just hasn't been there. And there's other people who've kind of added support for that. But yeah, I can talk more about that if you like. What, what brought you down this path? Uh, what actually took you to decide, well, I want to, I want to work on AWS Lambda. So first off, did you, did you, did this happen once Lambda supported Ruby or were you doing this before then? What kind of brought me here, I guess um, that actually goes back to the, I guess the original um, creation of Jets. Okay. So Ruby support was added November this year. Mm -hmm. I just started Jets December, maybe, maybe even October was the first commit a year prior to that. So a full year before AWS released Ruby support, I actually had a, a working version of Jets. People have done this before. Uh, you can add your own support to any language uh, to Lambda, even though it doesn't isn't officially supported uh, by using something called Shim. So uh, you know that begs the question: What's a Shim? So a Shim is uh, you write a Lambda function in a language that's already natively supported on AWS Lambda, and that Lambda function calls out to another language. <laughs> then you take the results of that other language and you shove it back up the Shim. So that's that's essentially how Shim works. Wow. And um. I kind of like to use the, uh, the analogy from the movie Inception with Leonardo DiCaprio. It's kind of like a dream within a dream. So in this case, is a language within language calling out, you know, it's another language. And with that, just like the movie, uh, the more dreams you hop into, the time outside in real life slows down a little bit. <laughs> so that's the issue with the, uh, a shim. So the, current, uh, the version of Jets uh, a year ago, like a long time ago, was using a node shim. It called out, and uh, a lot of people have done this before too. So I just kind of study what people did. There's actually even a, a blog post on the AWS blog that shows you uh, how to uh, use PHP, use Go, and I think use the Ruby runtime also on Lambda. This is again way before officially was released. And you know, I'll get back to the official release of Ruby too because that was really important. I think uh, to just uh, I think adoption. But uh, even before, the reason why I actually created it was because. I do a lot of work in the DevOps space. I do a lot of work in the development space too. I actually have built Rails applications many times before in my previous company. I uh, actually uh, was a, built a, a really large Rails app and it was actually one of the largest Rails apps in the world at the time. And it still probably is. But anyway, so I wanted just to build something to answer a question like, I want to build something where I could use uh, kind of the, the, the tools that I'm kind of used to and that I like which is like Ruby, which is like Rails, and which is AWS, and they can combine all those, right? And then, of course, back then, uh, Ruby wasn't supported for AWS, Lambda, so I just basically added support by shoving an interpreter into the Lambda runtime and then shipping it as part of the deploy process. And then the first kind of version of that, uh, the node shim would call out and then kind of eventually shove those results back in. But like I said, it was slow, like uh, slow to the point where it would take... Uh, even with um, a pretty high memory footprint on your Lambda functions. So the way Lambda works is if you allocate more RAM to your Lambda functions, you get a proportional amount of CPU. So uh, they don't really, they're not very specific on exactly how much CPU you get, but you get more and there's enough blogs out there where it says, I think if you go over like 1.5 gigs, you get multi-core multi CPUs. But anyway, what, once you, um, if you, even if you like up, the memory footprint of the Lambda function to like even two gigs of RAM, it would still take like a second or two just to shell out and then basically uh, shove the results back through the node shim. The first version of Jets I built like 2007-ish, December somewhere there. And then it was working. And actually there was a DSLR there. There were controllers, there were uh, routes. 
so the concepts were all there, but it was kind of too slow to really be used. And I was like, oh, well, you know, I was bummed out about that. And then I had this like idea, I think around July 2018. So that was a couple months ago. And then I was like, oh, wait a minute. What if I could just stay within the, that kind of second layer and like basically kind of stay within the dream? And the, I know it's, it's that same corny exception analogy. If I could stay in that uh, run, like basically that execution of uh, Ruby there, then I could keep it fast. So uh, I studied what's called the Lambda execution context on Lambda. And with the Lambda execution context, the way it works is actually when you go call Lambda function, it actually spins up a container somewhere, essentially. And that container, for performance reason, gets reused within Lambda. So this is called kind of pre-warming. And then uh, it gets reused for a while, actually, for a couple hours, I found. I was like, oh, that's pretty sweet. So why don't I just keep the Ruby interpreter in memory, right? So essentially, that's what the second node generation shim of Jets did. And that's how it was fast. Essentially, I got the performance times actually down to native speed with, uh, with the running kind of a, um, a modified version of shim that was just keeping Ruby memory there. So that's kind of how that kind of worked. But going back to your question, I was like, why did I do this? It's like, I just wanted to use Ruby. I use it when, when to use something Rails-like. I want to use something like Lambda-like. And then going back to what you said, like official Ruby score, I was really excited about that because I think even with a, like a shim that works pretty much at a native speed, there's always going to be, you know, people who are like, oh, well, it's not officially supported, you know? So there's always going to be kind of, I think, lack of adoption, which is, you know, understandable. So I was like, okay, finally, like official Ruby support, that's going to be great because people are going to maybe accept it a little more. So once kind of official Ruby support came out, I, was, I actually had to structure the coding away already where I was like, okay, I will just basically move over the official Ruby support. So they released Ruby support late November, under two weeks after that, less than two weeks, I, I moved over to the official Ruby version. And that's what Jets runs today. It runs the official Ruby version. I just, I think it's interesting one that you figured out there's a server behind this. I think a lot of times we think serverless and it's just magic, but there's a server behind it. And so figuring out how to take advantage of that, that's cool. And then the other thing is, is I just love the idea of Node calling out to Ruby saying, make the developer happy. Exactly. I know, I know. And you know, like for me, like Ruby is, where is that? Like I, I've played with a lot of languages, like Node. I mean, Node is cool too. Like, you know, uh, and I could use it and I learned a lot from JavaScript. So like JavaScript actually taught me um, closures. Closures was a concept that was kind of introduced to me and cl- like, you know, like, oh, how do you make private variables private? You know, like, you know, you have to do it within JavaScript with the inheritance structure kind of with a closure. So it's like that really kind of forced me to learn that kind of concept. So that's kind of cool. But when it comes back to it, I just think Ruby, it's just easy to read. It's kind of like when you go back to college, right? And you, you're learning C or you're learning whatever language you're teaching. The teacher first thing tells you, like, here's the problem. Then it's like, okay, first thing you're going to do is you're not going to write code. You're going to write pseudocode. You're going to write code that looks like code, but you're not going to write code yet because that's too hard. So you're going to write like this thing that kind of looks like what you're trying to do. And then what you'll do is you'll spend a second stage where you translate that pseudocode into C or Java or whatever that you know you're doing, right? But the cool thing with Ruby is that pseudocode layer, it's almost not there, right? You write Ruby, you're like, uh, I think I'm done, right? So that's kind of sweet. Yeah. And I think that's what it was like Matt's original intention is just like make the Ruby developer happy and the core philosophies around there, things should kind of like, work the way you expect, the principle of least surprise. All those things are kind of what I think makes Ruby kind of 
at least special on the introductory level, but I think it makes it even more special once you get into the metaprogramming world of Ruby. That's actually what uh, gives it a lot of power, uh, I think, compared relative to other languages. And I think what makes actually Jets something like Jets possible. Like other languages, uh, in order to kind of extend and write your own DSL, sometimes you have to like write a parser, right? Ruby, you could kind of get away with a lot of things with just instant about. So I got a question for you. I just want I just want to clarify this. So we're not talking about setting up small endpoints like API endpoints in the on AWS. You're actually talking about full on complete backend based applications and possibly full applications that are scattered across in multiple microservices on Lambda. Is that am I understanding this right? Sure. So I, I guess yeah. I should explain what the Jets framework does a little more. I, I, I would really love that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. There's kind of a couple good use cases for Jets framework, but um, it's basically, it takes code that looks very much, it's inspired from Rails a lot, but there's other frameworks that I kind of grab concepts from to kind of build Jets. But let's let's focus on the Rails-specific stuff right here, okay? So with Jets, you could basically go Jets new, and then your project name, it generates a new HTML project folder. And with that HTML project folder, you run another can called Jets Generate. It actually just uses uh, Rails scaffolders underneath to generate a scaffold with full HTML pages. And basically everything's done in like two commands, right? Then from there, you could test with the Jets server, which basically spins up a, a local rack server that mimics API gateway, okay? So... From that perspective, it looks kind of like very similar to Rails or Sinatra or whatever rack app that you want. You could basically build a full application with a couple of commands, Jets new, Jets generate scaffold, then Jets server, and then you could test everything, right? You have migrations, you have like Jets DB, you could migrate your database and all that. Okay, so that's kind of like the way it's kind of the, uh, explained on, uh, on, on the main uh, homepage right there. <laughs> Sorry, my, my baby's kind of knocking the door. Okay, so anyway, <laughs> so... So what Jets is, is it's like, essentially, you could basically build a full web page application with that, but then there's also this kind of deploy component to it, right? So from there, you could run Jets deploy, and then at that point, this is where kind of extra magic happens. This is where Jets now takes all your code, which looks like controllers, which looks like jobs, which looks like models, right? And it takes the public methods of your controllers and translates those to individual Lambda functions. And then it deploys them, basically, right? It packages up and deploys them. Uh, it also has a concept called routes, config routes.rb. It looks very similar to a Rails routes file because that's what's inspired from, right? Except it doesn't just deploy. It basically translates that routes file into API gateway resources. And then API gateway resources, what API gateway is, um, or maybe you know, uh, those who might be new to API gateway, API Gateway resource, the way you could think about it is, is the routing layer of AWS Lambda. So if you think of Lambda as just a bunch of functions that you could you know, define, you could connect like uh, events, and one of the events you connect to it is actually HTTP requests, like a RESTful API. So API Gateway allows you to build a RESTful API and then connect it to the Lambda function. So this is like perfect for the config route.rb, right? You just take the config.rb, translate to API Gateway, connect those API gateways to the Lambda functions that you deployed when you uh, run just deploy and that part kind of translates your functions over to um, Lambda functions. So hopefully that kind of explains like Jets from that perspective. It can be used, I guess, like a web framework, right? But there's three modes currently for Jets when you run Jets new. 
there's like just new by default it does html because i think that's like easiest to kind of get starter get to get started from the user perspective but there's also a jets uh mode dash 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 mode api and in that case it's kind of like rails api mode right it generates again a crud application that you could generate pretty quickly json i think by default and then from there you can deploy that and you have a basically a full json api there for like rails developers it should feel really familiar for guys who do a lot of Ruby with uh, some meta programming, then you, you'll see the tricks that are kind of being used there. And then there's the third mode that I, I, I want to bring out here. This is kind of introduced Jets here. So the third mode is a job mode, right? And this is where Lambda, I think, is really useful as like a DevOps tool. So this is why I actually, uh, I use it for actually all three cases, okay, <laughs> for some of the work I do. But the job mode is like, say, here's a, a blog post I wrote recently. Let's say you want to back up your Route 53 records, or uh, right? Uh, say because Route 53, you edit it. What happens if you edit uh, a DNS entry and you you forgot the previous value, and now you're kind of hosed, right? It's a tricky situation. So I like to set up backups for my Route 53 records. But you could do this. The typical way you do is you actually have like a pet server somewhere, a cron box somewhere, and then you run the Ruby function over and over, or the Bash function, whatever the backup function over and over and over, right? Carissa, daddy's on the phone. <laughs> so, sorry about this, guys. Okay. So, sorry about that, guys. Okay. So the job mode is, um, the job mode, I think it's actually really interesting because it makes a very light project where all you have is jobs. And then what you do is you define a Ruby function. That Ruby function, once again, uh, it looks like an a, a active job, but the active job actually gets translated into a Lambda function. That Lambda function runs on AWS Lambda. There's uh, no servers involved there. And then there's a rate expression above or a cron expression right above the method that then creates something called a CloudWatch event rule that schedules it. And the CloudWatch event rules, what it is, is uh, it's a, a resource from Amazon that allows you to essentially schedule work. It's a scheduler. It's a, something that you could call repeatedly. It's up. Here's the cool thing. You don't manage it. You don't set anything up, right? All you do is write code, you deploy, and then you kind of forget about it forever. And it's like, not forever, but like you're kind of set until... You know, the next, I guess, Ruby Runtime's releasing all that kind of stuff. So hopefully that was a little bit better introduction of what Jets is. There's different ways to use Jets, but it's a framework that allows you to deploy Lambda functions and allow you to run Ruby and then connect different AWS resources to those Lambda functions. And I just want to say about the Jets framework, it's what makes serverless possible because... <laughs> and Yeah, you know what's fun? Anything but setting up a Lambda function. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's a mess. Like, this is another reason why I wrote it. Like, exactly, you hit it right there, right? What I go is I go out there and uh, I do a lot of, you know, ops work. I do a lot of backend work too, right? And um, the ops work, I see what they're doing is they're writing CloudFormation templates to generate Lambda functions because, you know, CloudFormation, if you go on the website, it, it says infrastructure is code. But here's the crazy thing, guys, right? If you look at the code, it's actually YML, which is better than the JSON that was before. But it's not really infrastructure as code. It's infrastructure as YML. So imagine, remember the Java days? And I was like, I'm a little too young for the Java days, but I've heard the Java days at one point, what happened was all these frameworks came out like Hibernate, Spring, all those frameworks. And what kind of happened was all your logic got moved from Java land, which is like a programming language to XML configuration. And then you're debugging your, your Java application became this like ride where you're like, okay, let me just find the right XML configuration to fix this. Somewhere deep in the code, this XML configuration is going to affect some Java code somewhere that I don't know where it is, but it's going to fix it. So that's what we're kind of doing now. 
we're like, okay, let's change this one YML and that's going to affect, you know, something else. It kind of, maybe it's a poor analogy, but it's kind of like, that's what people are kind of doing right now. And so deploying a Lambda function, some people, what they do is they deploy why, uh, CloudFormation YML, which is fine for simple cases. But when you kind of build more complicated uh, applications, I would kind of say that, like, I think it's better to do with the DSL where you have a little more power and it's just more expressiveness. And also it's just, you're more familiar with it. So there's not a lot of pros there, but uh, it, it sounds like you've, you've messed around with Lambda a little bit before. Uh, I built a S3 hosted HTML interface that was in front of CloudFront, so in front of a CDN. And that would make calls out to a AWS Lambda function for user authentication. So it handled, uh, it uses uh, Cognito, I believe, is the AWS user management database system. And so it would create a session there. But then once the user is logged in, they could upload an image and that image would then go back to AWS Lambda to resize the image and then spit back the resulting file. And just to do the user authentication and just to create a simple puts and then gets for the image resizing took me an entire day. You know, with Jets and something, you know, this is with learning the Jet framework and learning how to create the sessions and do the image resizing. I could probably do that in a few hours, you know, opposed to taking an entire day. So, you know, that's why I said that the Jets framework makes serverless possible because otherwise we would be regressing 20 years in how we were developing code just for the web. And, you know, now with the introduction of serverless, it was almost like we did regress if that was your platform of choice. And then Jet Framework came out and it made it possible. And especially with the Rails-like syntax and the tasks that you built in there, I watched some of your videos and I'm like, wait, are we dealing with Jets or are we dealing with Rails here? Because it's exactly the same. You know, everything looks very similar, even with the scaffolding to doing the uh, Jet DB create, DB migrate, DB seed. So definitely kudos to the effort that you've put in there. It's made it something that's possible to then use the newest technology. Yeah, so I, I think that's funny because you're, you're using Jets and you're finding that there's a lot of similarities between Jets and, and Rails. And actually, uh, I think some users have kind of ran to that. I guess it's kind of like Rails developers who learn Rails first, and then they haven't actually learned Ruby yet, which is cool. That's actually how I learned, actually, uh, Ruby first. I learned Rails first. But then um, they can't distinguish between Rails and Ruby because Rails has such a, a nice DSL and so kind of intuitive in a lot of ways that like you're like, oh, I don't know where the line stops from Ruby and Rails, right? So I built Jets to make it look like Rails because I like Rails' interface. I, I think it's a great interface. So like, it just makes sense. So, uh, you know, I, I like that a lot. But in some ways, I think it's like that can actually confuse some users because they're like, wait, why isn't this not available? So it's actually very important to point out this distinction that Jets has kind of uses the same action view and action pack to do rendering within Rails. So that kind of works the same there generally, but the routing and controller layer is built up from the ground. That uh, maps, again, to Lambda functions and API gateway resources. So you, you can't really kind of use the same logic there. It just works. It's entirely different beast. But because of that, when you kind of glue the components together, not all the pieces are, are kind of there. Like one thing I really want to add is uh, name URL helpers. And then uh, I'm, I'm working on branching all that. But um, yeah, it's important. There's a little distinction there. So 
I would say like, you definitely have to kind of consider that first because, you know, it, it's still, I mean, I've, I've been working this pretty much for what, about a year on and off part-time here. It's, it's kind of, you know, it's got some ways to go still. So you mentioned you've been working on it <clears throat> off and on. I, I want to know a couple of things. One, what's the end goal here? Uh, I actually, I have so many questions for you. Uh, like what's your end goal? Why did you decide to open source this? Why did you decide to do that? And then how are you actually able to, are you working on this full time? Or is this still a side project? Or is this what you want to do full time? So my last job, I worked there for 10 years, okay? So that was a long time. So kind of get comfortable, right? And then eventually I left that job. And actually, I'll cover that history a little bit because I think it provides some good context on how, actually how I got to Jets. And then I'll answer a question, what's my end goal of Jets, okay? So, no, I don't work on full-time. I used to have another full-time job. Uh, I used to actually be uh, working at a company called Bleacher Report. It was a sports website. It was a Rails project. Uh, actually, it was employee number one there. Being a, a employee number one, it just kind of comes with the, the territory. You have to learn things you normally would not learn, <laughs> including back-end development, including operations, so I did a little bit of both. And when I joined the company, uh, we were obscure, no name, um, in a very small site. Eventually, we grew to um, uh, almost 2 billion page views, 80 million uniques, uh, rather decently sized, uh, large team, a couple hundred employees on the engineering side. Remember, uh, it was just me and then I grew up engineering team, like 30 engineers. A lot of learning lessons along the way there. I did a lot of back-end development. I did a lot of ops. I did a lot of kind of everything there. And um and on the back end side, like I said, it was like one kind of big uh, Rails project. And I think Rails is 0.2 days during that time. So it was pretty early on Rails. And during that time, um, uh, believe it or not, I, if you look at the GitHub statistics on that project, I wrote over a million lines of code for that project. But this is the kind of cool thing that I kind of like. I removed more lines of code than I added for that project. So during that time, I learned a lot about Rails, how Ruby works. And then also during that time, because nobody on the team wanted to do it, <laughs> I had to take on operations. It's just like one of those things that people don't want to do, <laughs> right? And then, all, and then you have to learn the scale too really quickly. So you kind of learn how what bottlenecks are actually real and what bottlenecks are just in theory, right? <laughs> it's like, nope. Like, why optimize something that happens 0.1% of the time? You know, there's no point, right? So anyway, so... I learned a lot about both. And because of that, I think I was kind of put in the situation where I could appreciate both sides of both backend development with Ruby as well as ops. And then I was able to kind of marry those two to now lead on to this. And that's why I gave you some context to Jets. So when I started building Jets, like I was, uh, I left that company. I was like, okay, what am I going to do? I'm like, well, there's, you know, this kind of right now in the ops space, a lot of people kind of do it like this way and, and that's fine. But I, I really wanted to kind of, bring back Ruby more in the op space, right? Because that's like, I've, I've messed around with Go, I messed around with JavaScript, I messed around a lot. I didn't mess around with PHP. And believe it or not, I did, I've done object-oriented Perl, which is kind of like oxymoron. Um, you know, Perl, uh, there's a joke, write only code, right? Because it's really hard to read Perl. It's so expressive. Larry Wall made that language so expressive. That's very hard to read. I also learned the closure through Perl. But anyway, so eventually I got back to, okay, why, um, you know, angle Jets? So I was like, I want Ruby and serverless. And I, that's why I shoved the interpreter into Lambda. Because I was like, oh, goodness, this would be so much better if I could just use Ruby and instead have to use Node, which was like, it's all good. I can use Node. I mean, I wrote a Node shim, right? That shelled out that did like some stuff that was like held Ruby and memory and all that kind of stuff. It essentially, it was like a server. 
Ruby support was added to Lambda uh, last year in November, they also added uh, custom runtimes and Lambda layers. And when they added custom runtimes, basically now AWS has decided, look, we can't support every single variant of every single language. So what we're going to do is we're going to allow the AWS users to run any language they want by providing them with like a API, an interface for them to, you know, ship their own languages. And that interface, that interface, you essentially have to start up a server and keep that server in memory, which is, does it sound familiar? It's exactly what I did with the Node Shim. That's the only way you could achieve that thing. Or maybe there's probably other ways, but that's the way they chose to achieve it too. It's like, oh, that's funny. That's exactly what I have to do. And I just, you know, I resort to doing that a little earlier. So the end goal Jets, I think it's like, I would like to get Ruby in more places. It's still my favorite language. I, I have a lot of joy when I encode in Ruby. And, I, and the other end goal is obviously like, I started consultancy, you know, I'm trying to, you know, get some business. So that's good too. And this kind of cool thing is I get to build these tools. I, I really, I think it's kind of nice what I'm doing now because I get to build these tools that help me do my job and help the consultancy and help my clients. At the same time, I get to open source it and then also like make my little dent in the universe, right? Like give back finally, right? And that's kind of cool. But I will also say that's like, I don't build these tools just for the sake of building tools. As engineers, we have a tendency to do that. Instead, what kind of happens is, um, especially in the ops space, there's a lot of tools out there. There's a lot. And I, I played with a lot of them. Terraform, CloudFormation, you know, Chef, you know, uh, Puppet, like down the list. Like I've had to do a lot over the years. And those tools are cool. Uh, but what ends up happening is usually the tool doesn't fit the problem you're trying to solve exactly, uh, perfectly. So what you do is, you know, you try to fit a, 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 a square peg in a round hole. What you do is you write some setup stuff that, you know, like in a bash script or something that sets up stuff up first. Then you call out to the tool, Vagrant or whatever, right? Pack or whatever. And then from there, after you're done, you kind of wrap it up and, you know, you clean up and then you kind of do what you need to do. And, and, and that's actually how I start off. I usually start off with that and that's how I learn too. Like I, I grab my, I try to be smart about it. I'm like, okay, how can I achieve this? go as fast as possible. I'll use Google. I use Stack Overflow like every developer. Uh, then I build something. And then eventually what happens is that wrapper script gets like pretty complicated or I, I go like, okay, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna fork that project. I'm gonna send in a pull request. I'm gonna tr- contribute back to the community. And you know, and then, you know, and then our, our prey gets merged, right? And all this kind of stuff. Or I just run the fork, which is great because that's what it gets all about. And then eventually I go, you know what? This is starting to get a little complicated. Why don't I just build a very light tool that does exactly what I need to do? I mean, for P6, I, I, I can develop too, right? So I was like, okay, why don't I just build exactly that? So that's why like, I eventually added these other tools because it came out of the need, right? And it did exactly kind of what I needed to do at the time. Then I kind of moved on. So uh, Jets, going back to, I guess your question was Endigo Jets, like it came out of the need. I was like, okay. I would really like to run some Ruby functions without managing a server. How do I do that? I can't do that. Let's shove the Ruby interpreter in there, right? And then now it's officially supported. And like, I would really like to build something like Rails, you know, uh, on serverless. So how do I do that? Like, okay, I just do that. I would really like to build like a simple cron job, right? With Ruby on serverless. So I'm like, okay, that's how I do that. It's kind of done, right? And I, I guess there's a couple of questions about Rails here. So I don't know, are, have you guys have you guys heard of Jets Afterburner, that feature within Jets? Not yet. I read a little bit about it. Okay. So some use cases for Jets, right, is a glue aspect of it. So once kind of Ruby support was let out of uh, the bag uh, at reInvent, 
a lot of computers were like, oh, let's run a Snosher app. That's so cool. Let's run a Rails app, right? Uh, there are some considerations and limitations that we, we, we should discuss, but essentially, Jet's Afterburner, what it does is you CD into a Rails project with that code unchanged. Then you run Jet's Deploy, and it packages up that Rails project within a Jet project and deploys it Lambda with basically essentially no work today. That's what it does. There's some videos on it and all that. So I was like pretty happy with that interface. And that was actually the second iteration of, of something uh, I was kind of working on. I was like, okay, that, that's pretty sweet. But that's, so that's what I would do. Like do as little as work as possible. Just like, see, like you know, try that. Try Jets Afterburner and see if you can deploy your current Rails app as is right now to Lambda and see how it works. And then you're probably gonna run to some limitations uh, such as the read-only file system, which Jets actually works around. And you might run to the limitation of the, um, the Lambda code side package can only be 250 megs. So that's a limitation that people should be aware of. You could deploy Lambda function, but the package can only be up to 250 megs uncompressed. So if your application is larger than that, you're kind of, um, there's workarounds for that. So I decided not to spend energy on that yet because I think Lambda is just going to actually increase that limit. And once that limit's increased, then, you know, then what's the point of, of kind of working around that? But so there's some limitations there, but Essentially, Jet's Afterburner, to go back to my point there. I'm kind of going on tangents here, guys. So feel free to bring me back in. <laughs> okay. Um, so there's a Jet's Afterburner mode where basically you just CD into a current Rails project. You run Jet's Deploy and you're done. That just deploys it to AWS Lambda, a Rails project currently. That's super cool. One of the questions I was going to ask is how much information do you need to have about how AWS works, how Lambda works and all that to get started with Jets? I mean, I've checked in your documentation. It's pretty, there's a lot of good stuff in there. So do I need to be an AWS expert to get started with Jets or can I start rolling with Jets and kind of get the AWS information as I go? I think it depends how you learn, but I think for me, I just like to go and then learn along the way a little bit. And then at some point take a pause and then go back and learn some more fundamentals. That's how I kind of learn. I think it's fine to just actually just go with it because it should generally just work. For most users, I, I set up the forums and stuff and most users just say, oh, that's surprising. It just kind of worked, right? And then you just kind of follow the documentation there and the community is small. I mean, it's, it's just the project is just starting off, but there are, are other people I noticed they're starting to help each other more out. So that's really cool. And I'm pretty much around there all the time because I do it because, you know, my heart's in it, right? Uh, I, I do it for the joy of it. I, I do. <laughs> so, um, so I'm around to help with that too. But I would just say like, go for it. And then what I kind of want to do is if once in time, once I have time, uh, I live in the Bay Area. So <laughs> anyway, uh, once I have time, then uh, I will actually probably, I'm thinking, I've been, I was thinking actually about this this morning. I'll go back and actually, I'll probably do some videos just covering Lambda Essentials, right? So that's how I learned too. Like, you know, it's kind of like jumping from like no programming language to Rails, then not knowing Ruby. Don't you wish there was like a Ruby Essentials course, right? So I, I think that's that's a kind of gap there. And I think it's going to be not not to say that there's no like a lot of learning material for AWS Lambda. I think it's just there's a lot of learning material for AWS Lambda out there. It's just currently focused on JavaScript and the current kind of tools for the last two or three years that dominated the space, right? So I think there, there needs to be some material, some learning content around maybe AWS Lambda and kind of Ruby specifics. And then, and I do this for my clients too. For my clients, I sometimes make like little quick videos to explain them like how like a low balancer works or how VPC works, right? And, and then that really kind of removes that barrier. And just, you just need that sometimes extra push. Uh, so I would say just like, you know, just jump into it. Just jump into it, confuse yourself, right? 
Uh, though I don't think you're going to be too confused. I mean, at the end of the day, you go there, it's, it's actually, see, here's the thing. AWS seems very complicated. I, I almost wonder if they do this intentionally. Have you ever seen, like, you click the service menu and then, like, expands. There's, like, 80 <laughs> mm-hmm. offerings. It's, like, then it's so much that there's a search bar. So you have to search through the shortcuts. That's how much offerings they have now, right? And that's only, like, one portion, right, of the surface, right? So eight of us, it, they, they try to cover everything, right? But because of that, it, it, it seems pretty complicated. And then this is actually what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to make AWS very simple. And most of the tools I build are essentially just trying to make AWS simple. So, but what I find is uh, the AWS documentation is very thorough. And I also find just, it's one of those things where you want to set up like maybe an AWS dev account, like a separate account, then click around and just like, you know, click around to just get familiar with it. And once you kind of get familiar with it, it's actually more simple than most people think, AWS. And because see, here's the thing about ops works too, right? So early, because I do backend and ops work. And ops work, there's always this mysterious, and there's this mystery around it, right? Surrounding it's like, oh no, I, I don't know how that works, right? But the end days, I, I would say like mystery around it is like learning like a lot of useless stuff, just so you can use one or two percent of your ops knowledge. That's kind of how ops works. It's kind of like you have to be a master just to kind of like some ops work. Oh, that's, that's just how it works. <laughs> Like once you kind of go click around AWS a little bit, you'll kind of realize, wait a minute, AWS actually provides the porcelain. It's kind of like Git, right? There's the Git plumbing and there's the Git porcelain. The Git commands themselves, they're actually, once you kind of get used to it, they're not that difficult. The plumbing themselves, oh yeah, good luck with that, right? Uh, it's, it gets a little deeper. So with AWS, if you go down to like the deep details, AWS actually only exposes really the porcelain. So I'll go back to like a low balancer example. Low balancer. So... ELB is Elastic Load Balancer. So uh, what is Load Balancer software? I don't know if you have, has anybody here messed around with Nginx, Apache, Tomcat, uh, Hot Proxy, any of those? Yep. Okay, I, I see yep. some nods there with Charles and Eric. So with those Load Balancer software, what you do is you basically just have to get really good at figuring out the configuration and figure out how to like set it up so that, you know, the Apache will reverse proxy to like either a local server or a local socket or a proxy, like a, a, a domain name or something, right? And then you Google Stack Overflow, you do all that kind of stuff. And then you figure out the configuration, then you figure out how to restart the process or you figure out how to send the no-hop signal. So what's the Elastic Load Balancer? Elastic Load Balancer, sometimes they refer to as a virtual appliance. What's a virtual appliance? It's simply software that Amazon has taken. Let's pretend it's Nginx. Let's pretend uh, Amazon took Nginx, modified it, right? So then they can now have their own API, the ELB API, hit that node, that server, reconfigure that configuration file, and then restart it, okay? That's what exactly Elastic Load Balancer is as a service. It's just basically Nginx as a service or whatever, the Load Balancer software as a service. But the cool thing is they only expose to you the configuration in the console. They they expose it by API, and then they wrap it with an even prettier thing called the AWS console. So it makes it actually pretty simple to use. So once you kind of click around a little bit, you're like, wait a minute, this is actually not as mysterious as I thought. You just like to kind of click around with it and it's like, oh, okay, that's it. <laughs> I think I, I, this is like the longest answer ever in the history of mankind. So, <laughs> say, you know, just go and deploy it. And then what I would do is actually go in there, or deploy it on separate, so create a separate AWS account, go deploy it, right? So get your, your feet wet and then go in there and just like literally click around and you're going to be realized, oh, wait a minute, you know, it's all right there available in this kind of like porcelain interface that's actually... And that's how you kind of, you just have to learn through some experience there. And that's where I think some learning material will help here too. 
You know, I think one of the first videos or uh, the next video that you should do is a parody whoops video for the Jets on Rails framework. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Whoops, look at all these serverless things I'm not doing. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. Whoops, look, I I didn't do that. I didn't have to set up this permission. Oops, I didn't have to do that. You're referring to the blog video. Yeah. 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 So uh, one of the questions I had uh, thinking about this, so I'm a big fan of a, a product called Asynchy, which is going to be one of my picks, but Async is a way to, to build serverless applications where you can, build, you can actually open source components of that. And then they have a, a, um, a something called StoryScript, which, which brings it all together. Basically, it's a tie-in for all of these different microservices. Taking that idea, um, is there a possibility or, or do you see in the future like a way where, for example, you could open source a gem that solely does, that solely does maybe uh, Mailgun integration deploys or something like that, where perhaps someone might be able to come in and piece together an application, not necessarily from their own code, but from all of these open sourced uh, microservices that they can integrate into their own platform. Is that, is that kind of a direction or something that you've thought about? I thought about it. I don't necessarily have a direction yet. It's more like, okay, what do I need this tool to do right now? And then basically I kind of do it right now. And then I'll explain why I actually think that way right now. But I, I, I've thought about exactly this. So instead of, and what's that tool? Uh, I'm going to write that down because I haven't heard that tool. What's that tool called that you, you're you talking yeah, about? Yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, asynchy.com, A-S-Y-N-C-H. I'm sorry, A-S-Y-N-C-Y.com. Okay, I'll, so, I'll drop it in the show notes. So yeah, that sounds cool. I also think that the way I've been thinking about this, you know Heroku and Heroku plugins? So that would be really, I think, a cool song concept with Jets plugins, right? Let's say you wanted a database, right? Why don't you just do like Jets install plugin or Jets install setup or whatever? And that sets up a third-party plugin and that's kind of done, right? And then it's kind of exposed through some interface and all that. And that some of that can be managed by Jets and some of that cannot be, right? That's the direction I would probably take there. But it's one of those things where I have found, and maybe this is how my brain works, but I have found maybe as a human being, I'm terrible at abstractions from the get-go. <laughs> like, okay, I'm going to make this perfect abstraction and handle all use cases. It ends up just like I'm digging myself a hole, right? So I have found that my mind works better by like, go, okay, this is what exactly I need to build, right? Because that's what my brain can handle. Then I build that exact concrete interface. And then I go, okay, wait a minute. I'm seeing repetition. Then I extract out uh, extraction from there. So what I'm going to probably do is, you know, build like a, a, a way to like hook databases, you know, build a way to hook up a couple third parties. And then I'm going to be like, okay, now I see the interface. Then I abstract it out. And this goes back to, um, I, I ran into this a couple months ago and I thought it was really nice. The pottery story. Have you guys ever heard about, about the pottery story? Making lots of pots? classroom so the pottery story goes like this like a, a teacher divides her class uh, her pottery class in two halves first half she tells them your grade is going to be assessed on one pot one perfect pot all right go and the other half of the class they go your grade is going to be based and assessed on the quantity of pots you produce make me a hundred if you can make a hundred by the end of the quarter you get a okay so, you know, the students go off and do the thing, the students based on quantity, they like start like red and clay and start making pot. You know, they, they just get like, you know, their arms get sore from all like the potting. And the other students think about the theory of making pots. They sit there and they, they, they think a lot, <laughs> right? And, it, and then by the end of the quarter, the teacher goes, uh, so all you guys are in turning your best looking pot. And then we're gonna have a competition. 
every single best looking pot came from the students who made a lot of pots. It turns out the practice of doing something builds expertise in it a lot more than just sitting there and, you know, this engineering thing, analysis paralysis, right? So that's what I'm kind of trying to do, like, cognitive, like, okay, I'm going to build a lot, of, a lot of things, right? I'm get to the point where I'm like, ah, uh, it feels like, you know, this needs to be abstracted. Then I'm kind of abstract out and then I'm kind of repeat for a while. I think that's where this uh, Jets is at this stage right now. Then as it gets more mature, you know, then I already have like a queue of matrix and all that. Then, you know, you have to add some safeguards in there, right? I think there's actually a benefit in the Jets community being small right now. I can move in different ways that you can't when your, your project's a little larger, right? So it's like, oh, so I'm enjoying that right now. Hopefully that answered your question. Yes, plug-in that, system that of some sort. No, that's, that's pretty incredible. I love that. I love that idea. It's the uh, spaghetti on the wall idea and just keep on checking until you're re- really good at it and it sticks. So how do people get involved in this? It's open source. How do, are you open to contributors? How can people help? Yeah, so of course, uh, open contributor, there's a whole contribution uh, site on the documentation page right now. I, I basically look at all the pull requests. I, I review them. I'm pretty active on it right now. Uh, there's also like a community board and there's also a, 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 a Gitter a room that I set up recently. So you can go in there and there's a couple of people asking questions around there already. So just, you know, just send me, you know, your thoughts, like, because the project is small, I think it's good because, you know, people, I think are going to get to know each other a little more there. Uh, so that's going to be nice. Uh, let's see how else you can evolve. Yeah, send pull requests. Like the pull request, it, it could be any small minor change. I'm kind of, I'm pretty cool with that. Um, pretty aggressive right now about what I kind of consider in because I think there's still, it's because it's small, there's still a lot of room for change. You know, just basically send me what you got and be kind, be kind too. <laughs> I've, I've rewritten it like a couple of times already, this thing. It's not as it was uh, a couple months ago. Any uh, production apps out there using it right now, aside from maybe yours? Yeah, I got a couple of mine. <laughs> I think there are a couple of companies using it. I've been meaning to put together some uh, quotes and uh, use cases. I just haven't had uh, the time to do it yet. I think there are a couple. Uh, I won't say like probably a lot yet because, again, still pretty small. But I'm pretty sure there's a couple out there already using it. And they've been, it seems like they've been pretty happy with it. What's a, what's a good reason not to use it, would you say? Uh, I mean, that's kind of like asking, like, um, uh, I'm a little bit biased here, right? <laughs> the creator. Uh, I don't know. Like, I guess the time, you just don't have time to kind of learn some of the concepts of like serverless, right? Lambda and all that. Because there is some learning curve there. There's just like everything else. There's learning curve. I've tried to make the learning curve gentle and easy by keeping with some Rubyisms that are familiar to people. But I'm not sure what's not a good reason. Like, for, for goodness sakes, like I prefer me personally, right? I would rather use Ruby and serverless than uh, other languages, you know? Not to like, you know, bash other languages, just like I have a different favorite color, right? No, like yeah, green, I mean, some people like yellow, right? So You're uh, preaching to the choir here for sure. But okay, I great. guess maybe my question was like, what use cases are not good for this? Uh, and that's kind of more of what I wanted to find out. You, we talked about some of the good use cases. Like, what do you not want to do with this? Like, if you're moving a big monolithic application, like super monolithic, I would be a little hesitant to do that because, you know, it might be a fighting battle. Like, again, you're only going to have 250 megs currently, so there's some limitations there. I think at some point, the limitations will kind of go away. I, I think one way, one good way to address this is to actually talk about, like, the Lambda environment a little bit. So, like, the Lambda environment, okay, you allow, I think, 128 megabytes of RAM to up to 3 gigabytes of RAM for your Lambda function right now. Now, goodness, if you're 
Ruby application uses more than three gigabytes of RAM for a single process, you got other problems, right? So that's not a concern. I know like some Tomcat applications can go up to like six gigs you have to pre-allocate. There is like, well, if you're running like a big monolithic Rails application with Puma configured with multiple threads, like 20 threads or something, you might go up to like three gigs, right? But Lambda works differently. It's a single process. You're scaling a, a single process. You're not scaling a server. This is the cool thing. Like normally you would configure like a, a real server with Puma or something and configure threads on it, right? Then you divide the number of threads by the RAM and you know per process or per thread how much you know RAM you have. And because you're using thread, you can kind of you share some of that memory through PAL. But with Lambda, it doesn't work that way. You get the full allocation of that RAM footprint for that process. So you're you're good on the RAM side, right? On the CPU side, I think most Rails or not Rails, just Ruby applications like CPU is usually not a bottleneck, right? There are like some really intensive stuff, maybe like Bitcoin mining <laughs> that, that might eat your CPU, but you'll be okay. Just like up the you know RAM a little bit up to like 1.5 gigs. And I think you'll, you'll be fine. I, I don't think CPUs can be an issue there. So what are the constraints? The constraints are a, a couple things. The constraints, you know, because those, I just want to address those because like, you know, usually your bottleneck, some people consider CPU and RAM, right? And then people consider network, but come on, you have the AWS blazing fast EC2 network here, right? So I don't think that's the bottleneck there. So, so here's the considerations. The considerations is uh, the size of the code itself. You're allowed 256, uh, 250 megs, excuse me. Your, your code has to be smaller than that. Now, because kind of the cool thing is there's um, actually for Rails, I actually lazy load Rails. And I'll talk about the next thing. Okay, but anyway, so if your application is larger than 250 megs on disk, don't, don't, don't use Lambda. Don't use Jets. Uh, you're not going to fit it, right? You're wasting your time because you're going to hit that limitation and be like, dude, why didn't you tell me? Uh, I told you. Uh, the, the other thing uh, is Lambda usually runs on a read-only file system. So if you go in there and you try to create a file, like a log file, it, within that project folder, var task, you're going to get error. Read-only file system error. It's going to bomb. So you have to consider that in your application for Jets. Jets is designed that way, so it actually doesn't actually create files. Rails is now. This is one of the reasons, and this is one that got you, so if you're going to try to deploy Rails, which uh, Jets already does this, onto AWS Lambda. So what AWS Lambda, what Jets Afterburner does is actually it deploys Rails to the temp folder. Because Lambda, they, they released this, I don't know, two or three years ago. Uh, they allow you 512 megabytes of uh, temporary space that you can write to in a slash temp folder. So this is actually what Jets does. Jets, uh, when you're deploying a Rails application, because Rails... Has a lot of plugins, a lot of things that assumes write access. It needs write access. So Jets Afterburner actually deploys your Rails application to temp and then kind of sets it up so it seam links it over and then you, you don't see it. It's transparent. But it kind of gets around that. But let's say your application writes into temp more than 512 megs. Guess what? That's another limitation. Then you should probably shouldn't deploy it to Lambda because uh, you're going to be holes there. Over time, I think the, all these limitations are kind of honestly go away. Um, you know, RAM and hard drive space and all that, or hard drive space mainly, it, it usually uh, it gets cheaper and cheaper. So it's just a matter of time. I don't know exactly what the constraints are on AWS Lambda, but I think the rumors are they're working on it. And this is one of the reasons why um, I haven't spent too much time kind of improving that side of things, because I think it's just going to kind of resolve itself in a matter of time. So I guess, I guess my question is another version of Eric's question, and that is, let's say I'm starting a new project, right? Because it's one thing if you're migrating it and it's like, okay, you know, I got to figure this stuff out. It's another thing if I'm coming in and I'm like writing a new app, I'm writing a new system, you know, at what point do I look at it and say, okay, starting out, do I want to build this on microservices? 
and serverless? Or do I want to build it on something like Rails? Are there any scenarios you can envision where you're going to go, you know what, Rails or Sinatra is a much better fit for this, and then I'll go set it up somewhere, you know, on a, a EC2 server or you know, some other VPS or something. Yeah, I mean, I think there's situations where Rails probably makes a better fit because there's a huge ecosystem. Rails has a 10-year head start. <laughs> uh, right? So there's a lot of plugins and ecosystems. Though I, I think a lot of those actually just kind of work. Again, I'm a little biased here, right? You're asking the creator. Mm-hmm. I will probably start off on Jets and see how far I can get away with it. And the reason is there's a lot of other benefits with Jets, not just to get like a Rails application there. I'm trying to blend the two worlds, right? Ops and right. And, and, uh, and development. So now it, it would be cool if like operation guys and developer, developers talk the same language, right? I think that'd be kind of neat. For me, I'm doing everything internally with Jets now, right? I still do some Rails just so I know what's kind of keeping up there. And I, I'm still inspired by a lot of things they do. And I think that's great, right? I think there's room for actually both. But I, I do think I start off with Jets if I find a limitation, I usually basically just kind of pretty much fix the framework. That's what I'm kind of doing. The reasons why to not do that, I guess there's more of an ecosystem on that side. Maybe there's more search results when you're Googling for an answer and all that. Uh, with Jets, it's still pretty small. But I will also say this. Once you get an application initially deploying Jets, here's the cool thing. There's a Jets deploy command, so deployment's handed for you. There's this concept in Jets called Jets Extra Environments. So... You know, um, when you're deploying like an application, I've ran to this uh, uh, many times over the years. Uh, the QA guy will come up and be like, okay, we're ready to test this new feature. Let's deploy it to the staging environment, this, you know, the test environment or the UTA environment. And then eventually a, a product manager comes up and he's like, hey, I want to test this other feature. I'm like, okay, I'll spin up another environment for this. All right. And that takes like a day or so. And then the, another developer is like, oh, my pull request is ready. I want to test that too. It's like, uh, all the developers kind of use, right? Here's the kind of cool thing. With Jets, there's this concept called extra where you basically just add an environment to a variable and it deploys a brand new full environment to APAD Gateway and Lambda. And it's basically separated with kind of no work, right? And on top of that, because the um, Lambda is charged on a per use basis, you don't get charged any money. There's no money. I mean, <laughs> unless somehow you run an infinite loop somehow that you know hits all your million requests for that month. There's some benefits there. So that's how, like, it's pretty cost effective right there. Um, like, you could say the same thing about Rails, though, because you could go do that I and mean, you could deploy Rack or Sinatra on Heroku, and that's not too expensive. But it's just, I think it's expensive in setting it up. It's the operational tools. And then I think the other reason why I personally like to use Jets is, yeah, I'm a creator, but also because the glue aspect of it, right? So there's this other section of Jets that I, I, I created a couple of months ago, and I want to add some more time and energy there, but there's shared resources. Uh, so shared resources, essentially, within Jets, there's like a, a stack DSL that allows you to write a CloudFormation template to provision any AWS resource. So this is like kind of like, um, uh, I think uh, Dave was talking about Lono earlier, right? But this is like Lono itself, not an ERB template generator, but a full DSL on steroids. But it's actually within Jets because I needed it to provision some shared resources to kind of connect and glue things together. So that's where I would kind of use it. I think the, the question is mainly around like if I'm building a web application, why would I use Jets? Well, I think, you know, no ops basically, right? That's the main benefit you get there. I definitely think it's interesting seeing where the limitations are and seeing how far you can get with Jets. The other thing is, is then if you get to the point where you need some 
deeply cohesive application or something like that, you know, then you can pull the rest of it together with Rails. And that seems to be the sort of opposite approach that I generally see people take with microservices where they build out a Rails application and then they start finding concerns that they can throw into a separate process and run it as some kind of job. And so it's, it's interesting looking at it from the other point of view and saying, okay, how much can I put into microservices just right off the bat before I even start, you know, building a quote unquote central app? Yeah, and I think that's a good point. Most people go from like a big monolith and then break it down to microservices versus kind of the other way around, right? Yeah. And I also think there's another interesting thing that I should probably point out about Jets. Jets is rack compatible. So locally, when you're debugging and developing Jets, you start up a rack server. Let's say you run into Lambda limitation. Just deploy on ECS, you're done. Mm-hmm. You could actually run Puma to run Jets. Yeah, it makes sense. So I'm, I don't have too much familiarity with versioning on Lambda functions, and this isn't really directed to Jets, but I know when you go to deploy via Beanstalk, when you do like an EB deploy, it'll deploy out the application, it'll update a existing VM, and it'll wait for that server to become healthy. Is there situations where when you go to do a Jet deploy or deploy a Lambda function, if that did not deploy correctly or something? Is your whole application going to then be on different versions or would that one function be messed up or would it roll it back to the previous state? I don't think generally that would happen because I'm using CloudFormation in the backend. So uh, CloudFormation, the way CloudFormation works is what Jess does is it takes your, uh, your code and takes those methods and translates them to Lambda functions, right? Those, those translated Lambda functions are actually CloudFormation templates resources. Gotcha. Those, okay. So essentially at the end of the day, uh, Jets is using CloudFormation to deploy your Lambda functions. And the way the deploy sequence works with uh, CloudFormation is it will create a new resource, make sure that resource works, connect it up, and then tear it down. So what happens if, let's say you deploy a bunch of new Lambda functions and half the Lambda functions, halfway, one of the Lambda functions like had some bad configuration or something. Well, guess what? The whole stack rolls back. Is essentially a blue-green deploy underneath the hood because of the way CloudFormation works. That's really awesome to know. Yeah. And trying to deploy at midnight on a holiday or something, and then things not work out correctly. Now you're trying to... <laughs> yeah, yeah, that kind of sucks. Yeah, no, I, I've had experiences like that too and all that. So, you know, the ideal deploy situation is you create like a new cluster, you, you know, route some traffic over there, you test it slowly and all that. And Jets kind of does that, like kind of like slimmer version of that via CloudFormation. You could actually do a, a kind of a fuller version of that by using that extra environment concept and deploying essentially a completely brand new environment, testing on that, right? Then switching over to or deploying in place at that point afterwards, right? So yeah, I, I don't think that's something that, I mean, sometimes the stack rolls back for like, you know, new bugs or whatever we're running into, but uh, most of those have been kind of harding in the last year. So, and I want to also say that, so Jets, it doesn't create one CloudFormation stack. I, I'm not sure uh, how much CloudFormation you guys have done, but um, there's something called CloudFormation child stacks and nested stacks. Are you guys familiar with that? Unfortunately, I've dabbled oh, okay. it. <laughs> exactly, right? So like nested stacks are kind of a pain to work with, right? Because like there's a lot of moving pieces. There's a lot of manual labor like to connect all. Well, Jets, when you deploy Jets app, it doesn't deploy in one stack because CloudFormation stacks have limits. You can only create 200 resources within CloudFormation stack. 
So you're going to run out kind of resources. So what Jets does is actually each controller, each job, essentially each class is translated to a full cloud formation stack. And then Jets uh, will also create a parent stack. And then from that parent stack, create all those child stacks. And it manages this entire process. Like API gateway resources is a separate stack too. And then through the use of kind of design and some conventions, like, you know, conventions on configuration, it passes the parameters between the nested stacks in, in kind of a structured way to simplify everything actually. And because of that, uh, it, it bypasses this entire limit of 200 resources, right? And actually it, it rolls back and it doesn't roll back, but it deploys actually pretty smoothly. And what kind of happens is when you de destroy the stack too, what I do is uh, Jets will kind of clear out the S3 bucket that creates, and then it will just delete the parent stack, and then everything kind of sweeps and cleans out like very cleanly, very cleanly. So nested stacks are something where it's very difficult to do manually, but it's perfect for software to do, for a tool to do. And once you kind of do it, I, I think, uh, decently, then actually it works out pretty well. All the Jets applications that people are using right now, they're actually all running nested stacks here, and Jets manages that all for you. Wow, it seems like you put some thought into this. Yeah, it's kind of weird because <laughs> I have some ops knowledge, right? So it's yeah. all that CloudFormation experience with the Lono template and then also like in the development template, right? When I created Jets, it wasn't like I wanted Ruby, I wanted AWS, I wanted, you know, serverless. But then I went out there and I, I, I combed through the source code of the other frameworks, right? It was like Rails is a huge inspiration, but there was also uh, the serverless framework, the JS framework. Zappa, the Python, awesome. Alice, the uh, other Python derivative of that one from AWS, uh, uh, Apex. And I, I basically borrow all those concepts, then figure out how they did it, and then kind of applied it, except Ruby, and ver make it very Ruby specific. So Ruby S would understand it. Nice. I need to push us toward picks. Um, but before we do that, where do people find more information about Jets? Sure. So there's the official documentation page. Uh, it's rubyandjets.com. Uh, if you need um, more information, there's actually a support page there too. And, and there, there's a bunch of links. Uh, I'll just list them real quickly. There's the community uh, forums now that have been set up. There's also the Gator chat room. There is also a bunch of YouTube videos I posted uh, that uh, Dave has watched some. I appreciate that, Dave. Give it a thumbs up. That helps spread the word, I guess. Uh, and also, um, there's a blog. Yeah, there's the Bolt Ops blog, the Nuts and Bolts blog, blog. And that's a lot of Jets kind of material there. So there's a lot of different kind of resources out there. Awesome. And if people want to find you online, where do they go? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty easy to find online. Uh, you connect with me on LinkedIn, go to my Twitter. Uh, all my handles are Tungaroo, T-O-N-G-U-E-R-O-O. -O. There's the YouTube thing too now. And I'm also in that Gitter chat room. Awesome. All right. Well, let's go do some pits. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. I've been a little quiet on this episode, but... Uh, Tung, that's, I really love your energy, and this is a, a very cool project. Thank you for sharing. Thanks for having me, Nate. So uh, a book I just recently finished is called Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion. It's a, it's a fantastic read, um, but it will terrify you in terms of just how predictable and gullible humans are. <laughs> it's, it's a pretty fascinating read, and, and I highly recommend it. Nice. Eric, do you have some picks? Yeah, I've actually got several. Uh, the first one I think we talked about a little bit, which is asynchy.com. Asynchy, uh, we talked a little bit about getting away from the whole DevOps side. And I, I'm a big fan of getting away from DevOps. If, if you've heard the podcast before, I'm, I, I very much hate DevOps. And so solutions like this that automated are wonderful for me. That's also why I love Heroku. 
Now, Asynchy is another tool where they are trying to make it so that people can open source and generate open source components of applications that they can put out there and eventually make money off of. But then somebody could come in and build full applications based on top of their own code uh, done uh, on in a serverless architecture plus integrating others using a, a combining language called uh, StoryScript. Now, each one of those uh, each one of those components could be written, but it's basically language agnostic, which is pretty cool. And as you said, um, Ruby is definitely the best language in the world, so we all want to use that. But maybe not everybody thinks that. Another uh, another thing I'd like to pick is uh, you guys might know I I have like depression and anxiety, and I, uh, most of us do, I'm sure. But I recently, my wife recently bought me this this lamp for my office, and it's this therapeutic light lamp. And I'll, I'll link it in the show notes, but it's, I turn it on during the day. And in fact, if you're watching the video, you can see like how bright it really gets. It's just blinding, but it's kind of nice because I work in my basement and now having this light, I feel like there's a bit outdoorsy feeling uh, where I feel like I'm getting uh, sunlight, even though it's not sunlight and it's dead of winter. Pretty nice. And then finally, um, one of the things that we've been using with CodeFund, we started using uh, this, this tool called um, Scout. Now, Scout, uh, it's a Scout APM. They're, um, what they allow us to do is actually monitor our metrics within the CodeFund ad rendering so that when, we're, when we do a deploy, we can actually see exactly what happens during that deploy. How does it affect the ad render time? And their um, extremely intuitive interface, and we're super pleased with them. So those are my three picks. Awesome. Uh, Andrew, what are your picks? I just have one today. For Christmas, I got a JJRC drone. It's model H68G, and I've been having a lot of fun with it. I live at the beach, so I'm hoping to start getting some really cool aerial shots of the beach pretty soon. Nice. I got a drone for Christmas too, but I haven't had a chance to really play with it. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I got a drone, that. drone and I crashed it. Yeah, I hear that happens. Do you have some picks for us, Dave? Yeah, sure. So my first pick is a health gear inversion table. So you guys had mentioned on one of the previous podcasts, I mentioned that I have a bad back or it's been acting up. And I think Eric mentioned uh, inversion tables. So I picked one up and it's actually made a big difference just a couple of minutes a day here and there. So I felt my back popping all the way down the first time I used it. Uh, such a relief. And then my second pick is a ergonomic keyboard, the Microsoft Sculpt. I'm a big fan of ergonomic keyboards for arthritis in my wrist. So it's definitely been one that I've enjoyed and it replaced my Microsoft Ergonomics 4000. Awesome. I've got a few picks as well. I, I listen to a ton of books. I probably listen to I also listen to a bunch of podcasts. It's just kind of my way of staying current and uh, learning new things, especially when it comes to running podcast company and, and things like that. So anyway, I've been listening to a book called The One-Page Marketing Plan. And a lot of this is stuff that I've heard in the past. So it's it's not a big surprise that some of the stuff that I'm hearing, but it, it's always nice to kind of hear it presented in a different way. It simplifies a lot of things and kind of gives you a step-by-step -step for for marketing and things like that. And I'm really enjoying that. The other couple of books that I've read lately are more health-related. Um, and I'm just going to call them out real quick. One is Cholesterol Clarity. Uh, the subtext is what the HDL is wrong with my numbers. And anyway, it's play on words. It's by Eric Westman and Jimmy Moore. Uh, the One Page Marketing Plan is by Alan Dibb. And yeah, I've kind of gotten in on the keto uh, movement. 
I actually weigh about 25 pounds less than I did three months ago. So, and some of that's due to health and health issues that I've had. And some of that's due to keto. So, so I'm really digging that. The other one that I uh, recently listened to is the Keto Reset Diet by Mark Sisson. Anyway, so if you're looking at getting into keto, you want to get healthier, lose weight. Um, I'm really, really digging uh, that diet. <laughs> Any diet that tells you to eat bacon, right? But yeah, it it's made a difference for me. I'm diabetic as well. And so eating low carb gets all my other numbers lined up. And uh, it's it's been a very, very positive thing for me. And then um, I've picked this before, but I'm going to pick it again. And it's just because I'm going to be able to get back into this uh, over the next week or two. I started running in November, December, and uh, I hired a running coach. And then, of course, I got super sick and I couldn't run. But uh, my coach, she's been getting me back into walking and running. And I hired her through McCurdyTrained.com. That's M-C-K-I-R-D-Y Trained.com. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. I still plan on running a marathon later this year. Of course, there's less of me to push down the road now. So that's also a positive thing. But yeah, I, I just want to call out, you know, some of that stuff because it's it's stuff that I look at and stuff that I'm paying attention to. Yeah, there there's not one facet of your life that you can go after to the exclusion of all others without paying for it eventually. And so yeah, I listen, I look at the business stuff, I look at the programming stuff. And I look at the health stuff. I look at the religious stuff, you know, all of the things that make up the different aspects of my life that matter. So yeah, so I I put a lot of uh, context into there. Um, I guess while I'm at it talking about books, I should also pick. So I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or Mormons. I've I've heard it's called Mormons. And uh, there's a Deseret. If you're, if you are LDS, if you're a member of the, the Church of Jesus Christ, there's an app by Deseret Book. And you can actually get audiobooks and um, books on there. And I just have a subscription to that. So I also pick up books on there. But a lot of this other stuff is a little more relevant to the audience. And so I tend to pick that more. But if you're looking for that kind of content, uh, it's, it's definitely a, a terrific app. And I think it's costing me like 10 or 15 bucks a month to get th- that content. So anyway, um, find what works for you in all of those areas. And uh, you know, just learn more about how to be a better person. And that might be taking better care of yourself, or it might be taking better care of other people. Uh, Tongue, what are your picks? Oh, sure. Uh, I actually want to bring out the book. Uh, I'll send it to you also. Profit First. Uh, I do Profit First. I love that book. Yes. So I'm uh, trying to start my own business here and trying to figure out how things work. Nobody teaches you these things. They're so important, right? And I really love this concept of Profit First is a book that talks about how you kind of set up uh, banking, separate bank accounts to pretty much manage money income into your business and kind of ensuring your, your company is going to make a profit. And that kind of concept behind the book is actually is re- author talks about dieting a little bit there. You're talking about dieting, but the um, dieting, he just says like he's watching info commercial and he's saying like binge diets kind of don't work. What happens is like, you go out there and you work out for six weeks and you lose like 20 pounds. You're like, oh man, this is awesome. I can get away with it. I can eat as many Twinkies as I want, gain all my weight and then lose it all back up. I just, I, I could cheat, right? So you kind of teach yourself and you reinforce yourself that, you know, bad behavior is okay. So uh, the kind of infomercial he was watching when he kind of started writing this book, one of the reasons he wrote this book was uh, he, the person said like, why don't you just have yourself smaller plates? So this is the whole concept of one of the concepts behind a profit first. You basically set up these bank accounts and you basically give yourself a smaller plate for operating to make sure that 
you don't do what most people who start a business do, spend yourself to bankruptcy. <laughs> so uh, I really like that book. That was great. Set up my accounts and all that. And I'm, I'm trying to practice right now, not fully perfectly, but I'll eventually get there. Yeah. One testimony I'll just add to that is that uh, over the last few years, I have had trouble paying my taxes every year after I file them. And so I wind up, you know, negotiating with the IRS to get it paid when I can. This year is the first year where I'm going into this knowing that I've probably paid most of my taxes. Profit First has you set up a tax account. So I also have plenty of money piled up in that account to cover anything else that I haven't already, you know, paid in my quarterly taxes. So, you know, it, it really does prep you for a lot of that stuff. Um, we also used our profit account to get out of debt. The only thing that my wife and I owe money on at this point is taxes because we have to file and all that stuff and our house. So that's amazing. Hopefully I'll get there one day. I, I want to add one thing, the profit first system. I thought it was hilarious how he actually has you set up two separate bank accounts in a separate banking company itself. And he calls that the non-temptation accounts. And the mm-hmm. idea behind this is hilarious. When you wire money from one bank to another account, it takes two or three days. So once you move that money in there, you kind of forget about it. Remember, it's smaller plates. So you don't remember it. And then guess what? There's a penalty to get it back. So you actually, it's like an emotional thing. It's t- treating finances as like an emotional thing because, you know, you were humans, right? So I, th- I just thought that was hilarious. I was like, okay, I have to do that just because that's pretty funny. All right. Well, thanks for coming, Tung. We'll thanks for having me, guys. That was yeah, great well, talking. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, I think this is going to be something that people can definitely go and start using right away. So, but yeah, we'll wrap this up and we will catch everyone next week. Okay, cheers, guys. Thanks so much. Bye, everyone. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C A C H E F L Y dot com to learn more.